Welcome once again to our weekly podcast. This week we're going to look at the 14th chapter of John, which is a fairly familiar one if you've ever been to a funeral or a memorial service. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me and my Father's house or many dwelling places. It's something we've heard a number of times before, but it is rich in deep meaning and wonderful allegory as well. So we'll take a little time today to look at the 14th chapter of John. Let's begin where we always begin, as we call ourselves to worship. May the love of God be with us as we come into this place. Christ is Alpha and Omega, Christ the source of all our grace. May each one of us here, gathered in this holy place, know that Christ shall be our host, through the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. As promised, our New Testament reading today is from the 14th chapter of John. Most of it I'm sure you've heard before, but the second part of it, about Philip, is a part that we often skip over. So today we'll read from the 14th chapter of John, the first 14 verses. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places, if it were not so. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way and the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on you do know him, and have seen him. But Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and then we will be satisfied. Jesus said to Philip, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak of my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do and, in fact, will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask for anything, I will do it. Our hymn today is a beautiful spiritual written by Thomas A. Dorsey. Now, this is not the same guy as Tommy Dorsey, who is the big band leader. Thomas Dorsey wrote some beautiful hymns, and this one's copyrighted back from 1941. And it had its greatest claim to fame, I suppose, when Mahalia Jackson sang it and took it to the top of some black charts back in those days. It's perfect for today's scripture reading. And it's simply called, I'm going to live the life I sing about 
in my song. I'm gonna live the life I sing about in my song. I'm gonna stand for right and always shun the wrong. In the crowd, if I'm alone, in the street, or in scripture lesson. I'm going to live the life I sing about in my song. How to live an authentic God life. Well, John 14 has something to say about that. And typically, we dwell on the first part of John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. Or perhaps we jump over that and go right to Thomas's question. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But today, 
I'd like to move down to Philip's question. You see, John 14, the first several verses, can be really divided into three sections. Jesus is giving an allegory, a lesson, about where he's going and inviting the disciples to know that they will come with him. They can't get past the fact that he's told them he will be tried and killed. They always thought they'd have him, and now all of a sudden he's telling them, his closest friends, that soon he will be gone from them, and they just can't get past that. So no matter what else he says, the questions always return to that very fact. You're leaving us? You're not going to be with us anymore? So Jesus starts off with a lovely story about where he's going, a place where there are so many rooms, so many dwelling places, that all of them will be welcome. Each of them, those disciples, were so different, and yet all of them will be welcome where he is going, and he will come and bring them to him. And then the questions begin. Both Thomas and Philip ask very pointed questions. Thomas wants to know where Jesus is going. He can't get past the fact that Jesus is leaving them. But when you get to Philip, Philip has a deeper question. Deep, Philip wants to know if Jesus can simply show them this father that he's talking about, presumably God. I just want to see God, says Philip. If you do that for me, I know that we'll be satisfied. I just want to see him. And Jesus begins with a minor reprimand, I suppose, but it's very gentle. Philip, after all this time we've been together, you still don't know me? You still don't know who I am or what I represent? You know I don't speak on my own. I speak for God. I speak for the Father, as Jesus calls him. If you believe in me, then you believe in the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Truly I tell you that if you don't believe in me, at least believe in the works that you've seen. And then Jesus says something very strange, which really is the purpose of today's podcast. Jesus says to Philip, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these. Whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. Now this poses a number of problems for us Christians in this modern age. Because, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of things that I might have asked for, and to be honest, a lot of things I have asked for that haven't come to pass. So what's Jesus talking about when he says, you'll do greater things than I will? I don't see how anyone could do anything greater than what Jesus did. And secondarily, that if you ask it of me, I will do it. I will do anything for you. Well, I begin by thinking about how a parent speaks to their child or a grandparent speaks to their grandchild. I am a parent and I am a grandchild and I have said these very words. You know, I'll say to my child or my grandchild, you know, I would do anything for you. I would do anything for you. Now, the problem with that is a smart kid or a smart grandkid will come back with great. What I want is a huge bag of candy. What I want is to have ice cream every night for dinner. What I want is a new go-kart. What I want are new video games. What I want is a Lamborghini. Hoping that when I said I would do anything for them, what I really meant by that was I would grant them any wish that they wanted. But in reality, as a parent or a grandparent, 
I'm not granting them wishes. I'm professing a relationship. I'm here for you. And no matter what you do, I will be here for you. No matter where you go or what you say or how you act, I will be here for you. You might disappoint me. You might even make me angry. You might even try to separate yourself from me. But I will always be here for you. And my suggestion that Jesus is talking about relationship and not about granting wishes is certainly confirmed a few verses later in verse 18 where he says, I will not leave you orphaned. Jesus is talking about the relationship. And in that context, he goes on to talk about how he has done great things for God, but that we will do great things for God too. And when he says, you'll even do better things than I have done, I've got to believe that what he's talking about is Jesus was on earth for about three years of public ministry. We've been doing it for millennial ever since. Jesus had an opportunity to work within the confines of the Middle East. We have carried the message to the entire world. So in a very real sense, we have gone on to do even greater things than Jesus did while he was here because of the power of his amazing love. So as is always the case, Jesus is talking about relationships. I'd do anything for you. And secondarily, he's talking about and encouraging us to understand that going forward, just as Jesus did great things for God, we too will do great things for God. In my lifetime, I've known some people who've done great things for God. I'm sure you've run across them too. Some people I have read about, some people I have experienced firsthand. I think about reading about some of the characters in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. When the disciples rose to the occasion and began to travel not only around the Jerusalem area, not only in the Middle East, but took their ministry into northern Africa and took their ministry into Greece and Rome and took their ministry as far west as Spain. All of these travels by the disciples in the early years of the church surely bore in truth what Jesus said, you'll do even greater things than I am doing. The disciples are my first inspiration, but there's in many other sense. I read some of the people like Martin Luther, who wrote such amazing works. Oh, he had his faults. He had a lot of faults. But his writings have inspired generations of people to understand more about God. I think about people that we are familiar with, like Mother Teresa in Calcutta, a name that comes up often when people want to do the epitome of God's face on someone human. Or even political characters like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King during the uh, time of the race riots and civil rights. They had a lot of faults, these people, and yet they stood for what was right, and often we nowadays will use them as the epitome of God's face here in the world. I've known some people along the way in my churches, too. I've known men and women who have served in the churches that I have been blessed to serve in. And when you meet them, there's just something about them that makes you understand. Here is a person who is living out the words of Jesus. God is truly in them. 
They are doing even greater things than we could possibly imagine. And they don't think very highly of themselves usually. Oh, I'm not that great a person, they'll tell you. I haven't done that much. But really, they have brought the face of God to the earth around us. And I have been blessed to know many people like that. A while back, I ran across a story that I really enjoyed from a rabbi. And I want to tell you that story because it suggests to me how important it is for us to begin to see in other people around us this spirit of God, this face of God, this love of God, these great works that Jesus said we would do, even greater than what he had done here. It's a story that originates in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. There is a school there called the Cush School, which is a school that caters to children with learning disabilities. Now, some children remain in Cush for their entire school career, while others go there for a while and then can be transferred to conventional schools, but all of them have special needs. One year, at a Cush school fundraising dinner, the father of one of the children who had been going to Cush for some years delivered a speech that will always be remembered by all who attended, and it's brought to us by a rabbi who wrote a wonderful book about this experience. The father stood up, and after extolling the school and its dedicated staff, he cried out, Where is the perfection in my son Shea? Everything God is done is supposed to be done with perfection, but my son Shea cannot understand things as other children do. My son Shea cannot remember facts and figures as other children do. Where is God's perfection? The audience was shocked by the question and a little pained with the father's anguish and stilled by his piercing question. But I believe, the father went on, that when God brings a child like Shea into this world, the perfection that God seeks is in the way this child acts and the way others act around him. And then he told this story. Now, you may have heard this story. It's been all over the internet, but unfortunately, it's been changed somewhat. The names have been changed. But this is the original story, as told by the father at the Cush School in New York. One afternoon, Shea and his father walked past a park where some boys whom Shea knew were playing baseball. Now, Shea asked his father, do you think they will let me play? Shea's father knew that the son was not at all athletic and that most boys, little league age boys, would not want him on their team. But Shea's father also understood that if the son was chosen to play, it would give him a wonderful sense of belonging. So Shea's father went up to one of the boys privately in the field and asked if Shea could play. Now the boy looked around for guidance from his teammates, but getting none, he took matters into his own hands and he said this, Well, look, we're losing by six runs and the game is in the eighth inning. I guess he can be on our team and we'll try to put him up to bat in the ninth inning when it doesn't matter. Shea's father was ecstatic as Shea smiled broadly. Shea was told to put on a glove put on one of the t-shirts of the boys who wasn't playing, and go out and play short right field in the bottom of the eighth inning. Well, the team scored a few runs, but was still behind by three in the bottom of the ninth. But then, Shea's team scored again, and now with two outs, and the base is loaded, and the potential winning run on base, Shea was the one scheduled to come up to bat. Would the team actually agree to let Shea bat at this juncture 
and give away the chance to win the game? Shea's father was absolutely surprised when Shea was given the bat. Everyone knew it was all but impossible because Shea didn't even know how to hold the bat properly, let alone hit it. And so when he came up to bat, there was some snickering in the stands. If you know anything about Little League, you know that Little League parents are not known for their love to the other boys on the other team. However, as Shea stepped up to the plate, the pitcher moved a few steps in to lob the ball in softly, so at least Shea would be able to make contact. The first pitch came lobbing in, and Shea swung clumsily and missed by a mile. One of Shea's teammates came up to Shea, and together they held the bat and faced the pitcher, waiting for the next pitch. The pitcher again took a few steps forward to toss the ball softly towards Shea. As the pitch came in, Shea and his teammates swung at the ball, and together they hit a slow grounder back to the pitcher. The pitcher picked up the soft grounder and could have easily thrown the ball to the first baseman. Shea, who'd never run that far in his whole life, would have been out easily, and that would have ended the game. But instead, something happened. The pitcher took the ball and threw it on a high arc, way out into right field, far beyond the reach of the first baseman. Everyone started yelling, Shea, run to first, run to first. Now, as I said, never in his life had Shea ever run that far. He scampered down the baseline, wide-eyed and startled. By the time he reached first base, the right fielder had the ball. He could have easily thrown the ball to the second baseman, who would tag out the still-running Shea. But the right fielder understood what the pitcher's intentions were. So he threw the ball high and far over the third baseman's head. Everyone yelled, run to second, Shea, run to second. Shea ran towards second base as the runners ahead of him deliriously circled the bases towards home. As Shea reached second base, the opposing shortstop ran to him, turned him in the direction of third base, gave him a little push and said, run to third. As Shea rounded third, the boys from both teams ran behind him screaming, Shea, run home, all the way is Shea. Shea ran home, stepped on home plate, and all the parents in the stands and all the boys made him the hero as he had just hit a grand slam and won the game for his team. After a pause, the father concluded, that day, said the father softly, those 18 boys reach their level of God's perfection, for in them God's face had shone. As we go through our lives, there are lots of opportunities to see people around us who are doing the work that Jesus said we would do. And I might add, some of those people are us. I know we don't think of ourselves as heroes, when we think about this story of Shea, perhaps we dwell on the 18 boys and their parents who encouraged him. Perhaps we even lift up his father who took a chance to send him there. But if we truly understand the work of God in the world, then we understand that Shea was part of that work too. As disabled as he was by human standards, God never saw that. God sent him that day to bring us all to a moment of God's perfection. Just a moment. But in that moment, 
God's work truly shown in the people around us. Jesus said, Those who dwell in me will do my works. They will believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will do the works that I do. In fact, will do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name. So the Father will be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask for anything, I will do it. Jesus is not always a grantor of wishes, but he is in a relationship with us in which he hopes that God's face will shine in us as it did in him. I will never leave you orphaned, he says. You'll do more, more even than I have done. For a millennium, there will be people who will shout the name of Christ who will do the work of God and change the world. Not because they're so great, not because they're so perfect, but like Shea, their earthly imperfections are made perfect by the love of God. Let's pray together. Almighty and loving God, we have seen around us and in ourselves this kind of God work that you said we would do. You told us whatever we did, we could do in God's name because of you. And we have. Oh, we are so imperfect. And yet you use us to do perfect things, perfect God moments. Thank you, Lord God, for giving us this instruction, for giving us this courage, for giving us this opportunity. In the name of God, we pray all these things. Amen. Our benediction today comes again from Thomas A. Dorsey, that great hymn writer. This one has a copyright of 1938, and it's a lot more familiar, I would guess. For our benediction today, we'll hear from Thomas A. Dorsey's great hymn, Precious Lord, Take My Hand. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. My friends, the service here is ended. May we go in peace. Amen.